Hello and welcome. On behalf of CME Outfitters, I'd like to welcome and thank you for joining us for this program titled Eosinophils, Cytokines, and Clinical Manifestations of EGPA. This program is part of a CMEO snack series supported by an independent educational grant from GSK. I'm Dr. Michael Wexler, Professor of Medicine and Director of the National Jewish Cohen Family Asthma Institute in Denver, Colorado. I'm joined today by my colleague, Dr. Praveen Akuthoda. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. I'm a professor of medicine at University of California, San Diego, and I'm a eosinophile. I take care of eosinophilic diseases and eosinophilic asthma, and I also do research in those areas as well as at the bench on eosinophil biology. So it's going to be fun having this conversation. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it as well. Our learning objective for today is to discuss and focus on the pathophysiology and clinical course of eGPA. So let's start off by discussing what is eGPA. eGPA is an eosinophilic vasculitis with several key features, including eosinophil-rich granulomatous inflammation, usually with eosinophilic vasculitis, moderate to severe asthma, and peripheral blood eosinophilia, with a lot of end-organ involvement. Now, we can see manifestations of eGPA in most any organ system. eGPA can affect the upper airways with nasal polyps, allergic rhinitis, recurrent sinusitis and otitis media, and it can affect the airways with asthma, eosinophilic pneumonia, and pulmonary infiltrates. It can affect with cardiomyopathy, myocardial infarction, pericarditis, or arrhythmias. It can affect the GI tract as well with abdominal pain, gastroenteritis, intestinal hemorrhage, diarrhea, and many other symptoms. Oftentimes, this disease entity can also present with neurologic manifestations, such as mononeuritis multiplex, where patients can have weakness, tingling, and or numbness. It can also affect the kidneys with glomerulonephritis, and oftentimes it can also affect the skin with manifestations including rashes that can manifest as palpable purpura or an erythematous rash, subcutaneous nodules, or libidoreticularis. In many instances, patients just have a lot of systemic symptoms, including fatigue or malaise and fever or weight loss. When we think about how common and how frequent all of these symptoms are, I think it's important to look back at a lot of different studies that have evaluated the epidemiology of eGPA. And we recognize that asthma, sinus disease, and pulmonary infiltrates are very common presenting findings, as well as neuropathy. Almost all patients have asthma with eosinophilia, and then a large proportion present with what appears to be pneumonia or pulmonary infiltrates. When patients present, sometimes they have neuropathy with the weakness, and skin involvement with the cutaneous rash is also an important presenting sign. Praveen, maybe we can talk a little bit about the pathophysiology of eGPA. What is going on that leads to the manifestations of eGPA in patients that we see? Yeah, let's start by talking about the eosinophils themselves and how they can mediate tissue damage. Eosinophils are complex cells. Um, 
with a lot of immunoregulatory features. But when you think about the direct tissue damage that occurs from and end organ damage that occurs directly from the eosinophil itself, you tend to hone in on the cationic granule, granule proteins that are that are housed in the many granules that are that are characteristic of eosinophils. And these uh, cationic granule proteins include major basic protein, eosinophil peroxidase, eosinophil cationic protein, and eosinophil-derived neurotoxin. And these proteins are released when granules are, granules are released by eosinophils, and they can directly cause uh, tissue fibrosis, uh, they can cause thrombosis, and uh, lead to damage in the airways, the v blood vessels, uh, the heart, etc. And then going back to this idea of eosinophils being complex immunoregulatory cells, while we think of eosinophils as a downstream manifestation of Th2 programming, eosinophils themselves can perpetuate Th2 programming. They themselves contain many preformed cytokines and can perpetuate and continually activate uh, Th2 activation. And when I, when I say the words Th2, for those who are not familiar, you know, that's the immunology speak for the canonical allergic inflammation that is that is mediated by the the th2 lymphocyte and and then kind of thinking a little bit about egpa itself rather than the the eosinophil egpa lives at the crossroads of two types of inflammation uh inflammation that's more vasculitic perhaps th1 and th17 mediated and inflammation that is more allergic or th2 mediated we're still learning, as you know, Mike, a lot about the immunology in, in EGPA, the, the immunopathogenesis, but uh, so the, it's still relatively early days, surprisingly enough. But, uh, but I would say things to remember when you think about the immunology of EGPA are, are multiple pathways of immune activation. Th1 and Th17, again, potentially uh, activating vasculitic pathways and Th2 features, perhaps activating the allergic manifestations of, of EGPA. Yeah, no, it certainly is a complex pathophysiology, and I think that we have to think about this complex soup of cytokines that include not just the type 2 cytokines, IL-4, IL-5, and IL-5, but also the non-type 2 cytokines, including IL-2 and IL-17 and interferon gamma. Right? Beyond that, we also need to think a little bit about the downstream mediators that are observed, um, including, uh, uh, as you mentioned, some of the cationic proteins, but some of the downstream antibodies that are produced by B-cell activation. You know, we're familiar with the allergic pathophysiology with IgE, but in EGPA specific, there can be production by B cells of IgG4 and of antineutrophil cytoplasmic antibodies. And so I agree with you, this is a complex situation. And what we're seeing is, is inflammation on multiple levels at the tissue level, uh, and and then furthermore, more systemically, you can get a lot of interaction between all of these different mediators as well as antibodies. One of the, the key things that I think that we have come to recognize in EGPA in particular is the important role of the eosinophil. While we do have the antibody-mediated vasculitic activity, it's clear that the eosinophil is playing an important role in EGPA pathophysiology. And 
when we think about the eosinophil and how to potentially address some of the inflammation uh, that is associated with eosinophilia, I think we have to think a little bit more upstream and look at some of the cytokines that are playing a role. And IL-5, I believe, is probably the most important cytokine for eosinophilic activity inflammation because it plays a role in terms of eosinophil differentiation in the bone marrow from stem cells, uh, eosinophil activation, eosinophil survival, as well as eosinophil recruitment to the tissues, which is not just from, uh, from eosinophils uh, and IL-5, but also IL-4 and 13 play a role a little bit in terms of the trafficking of eosinophils. And I think it's really important to recognize the important role that IL-5 plays in patients with eGPA. And this has been borne out by clinical studies that have demonstrated that IL-5 may be increased in patients with eGPA compared to controls. And when you look at patients, their IL-5 levels uh, can, be, can be higher, resulting in eosinophils being higher. And we also know that IL-5 is an important cytokine that's derived from both TH2 cells and ILC2 cells. So now that we recognize that IL-5 is important and that eosinophils are important in eGPA, Praveen, tell me what, what treatments have been developed that target IL-5 in general and specifically uh, for eGPA? Yeah, Mike, even before I talk about those, you know, just reiterate how important IL-5 is to, to ESMFL biology. So blocking IL-5 blocks all of those things that you talked about, the development of eosinophils from uh, myeloid precursors in the bone marrow, the activation of eosinophils. So if you block IL-5, you're really blocking uh, the presence and ongoing activation of, of eosinophils. So uh, blocking IL-5 with monoclonal antibodies has been an attractive target for, for eosinophilic disease, um, and including eGPA. And there are three uh, biologic medications, so-called biologics, that are monoclonal antibodies against IL-5 or IL-5 receptor. Uh, two medications that are uh, IL-5 blockers, uh, mepolizumab and resolizumab, mepolizumab being a subcutaneous medication and resolizumab being a IV formulation. And as I said, those block the, the IL-5 cytokine itself from binding to the IL-5 receptor on eosinophil precursors and on eosinophils themselves. And then the third medication is the IL-5 uh, receptor monoclonal antibody, venralizumab, which binds directly to the IL-5 receptor on, on eosinophils. And this is a, a little bit even more unique in that the binding of the monoclonal antibody to the IL-5 receptor doesn't just block the binding of IL-5 itself to the receptor, it actually engages natural killer cell uh, function and engages direct killing of eosinophils by, by natural killer cells, so-called antibody-dependent cell-mediated cytotoxicity, or ADCC. So uh, in theory, there's even better uh, eosinophil depletion from uh, the IL-5 receptor monoclonal antibody. Yeah, th and that's important. I think both of these mechanisms, either targeting IL-5 or targeting the IL-5 receptor, can have a significant impact on eosinophilia. And we've seen that in clinical studies when we look at severe eosinophilic asthma with chronic rhinosinusitis, with hyper-eosinophilic syndrome. Um, but really, at this point, uh, the only therapy that is uh, really targeting patients with eGPA that's been approved by the FDA has been mepolizumab. 
And that's, as you mentioned, a monoclonal antibody that targets IL-5 itself. So maybe we should review some of the data with regard to anti-IL-5 therapy and eGPA. The study that most people are aware of with eGPA is the MIRA study, which MIRA stands for Meplizumab and Relapsing or Refractory eGPA. And this was a study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2017. And uh, in that study, patients were randomized to receive either 300 milligrams of meplizumab on a monthly basis, or they received placebo on a monthly basis. Now, before that, one of the key uh, outcomes was to evaluate the efficacy of meplizumab in terms of reducing blood eosinophil counts. And in this study, it demonstrated a clear reduction in blood eosinophil counts in uh, patients treated with meplizumab versus placebo. But let's talk about and focus on some of the clinical outcomes in patients with eGPA. Praveen, you were part of the study along with me. Uh, why don't you describe a little bit how patients did with meplizumab treatment in the Amira study? Great, and I'll start by also saying that, Mike, you led this study, so you're being modest, and uh, this was an important landmark study in, in eGPA, and it's led to um, a great deal of uh, good outcomes in our in our patients with with eGPA and and, and light taking outcomes. It, that all stems from the the clinical data in in this study, as you mentioned. So the primary endpoints of this study were were co primary endpoints. They were uh, the the presence of um, remission at weeks 36 and 48, and then the total accrued weeks of, of remission. So um, if you look at remission over the course of the study uh, at all, all time points over the study, uh, there are more patients with mepolizumab at any given week of the study who are in remission compared to those with placebo. And then when you look at the primary endpoints in the study, there are a greater number of accrued weeks of, of uh, remission in the mepolizumab patients versus placebo and a greater number of patients who are in remission at the end of, end of treatment and, and also at, at week 30, 36 of the study. You know, those are some of the nitty-gritty details, but the, the top-line message is that the study met its, its pre-specified primary endpoints quite, quite robustly. And then other secondary endpoints of, of interest are, in particular, are the, are the relapse rates uh, or the uh, number of relapses over the course of the study. And that, that figure shows about a 50% reduction in relapses of eGPA over the, the course of the study on, on mepolizumab. And we're now starting to see real-world data emerge that track the efficacy data that we had in the clinical trial setting. And, and then as far as potential predictors of response to, to mepolizumab therapy, you know, we're finding in, in post-hoc analyses of, of these data that uh, all groups, all comers seem to respond to therapy. It doesn't seem to be that any particular clinical indicators are telling us that one, one uh, group of clinical features is more prone to respond than, than another. So it seems to be a pretty broad-based uh, efficacy in patients with eGPA, which itself is a heterogeneous disease. So it's, it's nice to see um, a broad, uh, broad base of outcomes. Yeah, I think the other key outcome that, um, is really important to patients was the 
policy of meplizumab to facilitate corticosteroid withdrawal in these patients. In the uh, clinical trial, patients who were on placebo uh, started off at around 10 to 11 milligrams of prednisone and really had no meaningful reduction in corticosteroid dosing. But in the patients who received mepolizumab, they were able to reduce their corticosteroid by about 50% and got down to 5 milligrams a day of prednisone. And as many as 19% of patients were actually able to come off of corticosteroids completely. And so that is, uh, I think, unheard of uh, previous to these studies in terms of eGPA. We, we also did a post hoc analysis evaluating uh, other ways to look at the efficacy. Um, you know, the study defined remission as getting down to a Birmingham vasculitis score of uh, zero and a corticosteroid dose of four milligrams per day. And so that was one of the key definitions of remission. But we also looked at other ums, and that included uh, patients who had no relapses over the course of the year, even if they weren't able to get down to less than four milligrams a day. And we also looked at the proportion of patients who were able to reduce their uh, corticosteroid dose by 8% or more. And when we look at, you know, uh, all of those outcomes, we found that as many as uh, uh, close to 80% or four out of five patients had a meaningful benefit in terms of some of those outcomes. And the other thing that I think it's important to recognize is just the safety data. This is a, a relatively safe drug, and it's been studied not just in eGPA, but in other uh, disease entities as well, as have some of the other anti-IL-5 uh, therapies. Um, we should also mention, it isn't just mepolizumab that, that's approved. We're also doing a study right now looking at a comparison between mepolizumab and benrolizumab, the L5 receptor antibody therapy, um, to see whether or not that is as effective or can be as effective as mepolizumab. But Praveen, what are some of the other benefits of anti-IL-5 uh, therapy? Um, in patients, uh, in, in, in some other epileptic disorders, where else have we seen some benefits? Yeah, you can imagine that uh, eosinophilic depletion has got benefits in, in potentially multiple diseases, and eosinophilic asthma has really been the poster child for for uh, anti-IL-5, anti-eosinophil therapies. Uh, there's a landmark DREAM trial by uh, Ian Pavort and, and colleagues from, from 2012 uh, was the first uh, positive study for mepolizumab in, in eosinophilic asthma leading to its approval in, the, in, in multiple regions around the world for the treatment of eosinophilic asthma. And there's other studies as well um, that show or, corticosteroid sparing with mepolizumab that, uh, that again, kind of reiterate the, the clinical efficacy, including reduction of exacerbations, uh, reduction of ED visits, et cetera. Uh, so eosinophilic asthma is is one one area, and other IL-5 therapies, including resolizumab and benrolizumab, are also approved for the for the treatment of severe eosinophilic asthma. Mepolizumab also has uh, another eosinophilic disease indication uh, with hypereosinophilic syndrome, and we should mention that 
Um, the, the dose of mepolizumab for severe eosinophilic asthma is 100 milligrams, while for eosinophilic diseases like EGPA and hypereosinophilic syndrome, the dose is, is 300 milligrams. But in, for uh, hypereosinophilic syndrome, or HES, a phase three trial recently leading to the FDA approval did show a reduction in uh, HES flares in, um, in, in disease. And then the other uh, disease indication that's been approved for a while is, uh, is chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyposis, uh, which again is based on robust uh, phase three data. So there's a lot of eosinophilic diseases that really uh, can benefit from IL-5 blockade. So it's important for us to recognize these patients with eosinophilia. And when I think about eosinophilic diseases, certainly there's eosinophilic asthma, there's uh, eosinophilic pneumonia, there's EGPA, there's hypereosinophilic syndrome, and then there is chronic rhinosinusitis, nasal polyps, all of which are eosinophilic disorders. But EGPA isn't just a eosinophilic disorder, it's also an ANCA-associated vasculitis. And I think it's really important to distinguish EGPA from the other ANCA-associated vasculitis, as well as just vasculitis in general. Um, EGPA really fits into the medium to, to a small vessel vasculitides that, that have been observed. You know, there's large vessel vasculitides like giant cell arteritis or tachyostu arteritis, and then other medium vessel vasculitides like polyarteritis and dosa and Kawasaki disease, and then small vessel vasculitides like uh, cryoglobulinemic vasculitis, uh, Hanoff-Schoenlein purpura or IgA vasculitis, and hypocomplementemic urticarial vasculitis. But really, I think it's important to distinguish uh, eGPA from the other ANCA-associated vasculitides, and those include microscopic polyangiitis and granulomatosis with polyangiitis, or GPA, which used to be known as Wegener's disease. So, Praveen, maybe we can talk a little bit about how to distinguish eGPA from GPA and MPA. I think the eosinophilia itself is the main thing that distinguishes, you know, the, these diseases. So that's, that's not the only thing, but that's the main thing. Hypereosinophilia um, is really the calling card of EGPA. Uh, eosinophil counts of at least 1,000. Uh, we could have a side conversation about defining hypereosinophilia as either 1,000 or 1,500, but for the purposes of EGPA, eosinophil counts of, of 1,000 or greater. Um, the other things that I would distinguish EGPA from the other uh, small vessel systemic vasculitides or ANCA-positive uh, systemic vasculitides is the allergic features of EGPA, which you don't necessarily see present in those other entities, particularly the severe asthma. Um, in GPA, you can have uh, sinus disease, uh, of course, but uh, but it's not necessarily allergic sinus disease like you see in in EGPA. That can be hard to tease out clinically, but but those are important distinctions. And then the ANCA positivity in EGPA really is. Uh, much less frequent uh, than in uh, GPA or, or MPA. So best estimates in EGPA are that ANCA positivity is somewhere between 30 to 40 percent. Um, and, and there are some large case series, including the French vasculitis study groups case series that uh, that make this number probably the, the best one. Though you'll, if you look through the literature, you'll see numbers that are 
quite wide ranging for anchor positivity, but I think you and I would both agree that somewhere around a third is probably the the right number for anchor positivity in eGPA. Yeah, I think the other the other thing that is seen more commonly in GPA and MPA is the presence of glomerulonephritis. It does occur in eGPA, but not to the same frequency. So really, I think the key features are the presence of eosinophilia and asthma, and that's what really distinguishes eGPA from the others. And then the type of ANCA also. Um, you know, patients with GPA predominantly have a C ANCA. Uh, type of, a, of ANCA or a protonase 3, PR3 ANCA, whereas patients with eGPA usually have myeloperoxase if they're going to be ANCA positive or P ANCA positivity. Uh, so it's really important, I think, for clinicians to recognize what is eGPA and try to recognize it early on. And so to recognize, I think one has to appreciate how eGPA develops in a phasic pattern. Usually it starts off with a prodromal phase with asthma and rhinitis and maybe recurrent sinusitis. And then there can, is usually an eosinophilic phase where people recognize some tissue infiltration or blood eosinophils as well that are elevated. Um, and then it's finally the terminal vasculitic stage. And oftentimes that's too late. That's when patients already have all the manifestations of eGPA and they can present with organ involvement, including necrotizing vasculitis, neuropathic symptoms, gamanophritis, and or skin lesions. So it's important for us to recognize all of these in our patients. And it's the blood eosinophil counts that change over time that really allow us to make a recognition. And so we need to really take a look. People often don't look at the blood differential and look at the blood eosinophil counts. And we need to see the eosinophil counts because they can rise over time and they might come down after treatment is initiated with either um, uh, immunosuppressed or corticosteroids, which have for the most part been a mainstay of therapy. So when we think about these entities, uh, can you talk a little bit, Praveen, about the difference in presentation between some of the ANCA-positive patients and the ANCA-negative patients in eGPA? W what differentiates those patients? You know, there are things that tend to differentiate between ANCA-positive patients and ANCA-negative patients, but there are no, you know, clear-cut dividing lines between ANCA-positive patients and ANCA-negative patients. So I think that's an important uh, important first, first, point, uh, first point. There's no, you know, absolute... Uh, you know, set of clinical manifestations that's going to absolutely track with with ANCA positivity or or ANCA negativity. But there are some there are some tendencies, and you know, some of the large case series again, the French vasculitis study group are uh, give us good data for um, which organ manifestations are more likely in ANCA with ANCA positive versus ANCA negative patients. ANCA positive patients tend to be the ones that have uh, more renal complications, glomerulonephritis. Um, compared to ANCA negative patients. On the other hand, ANCA negative patients, they, they tend to have, uh, a higher percentage of cardiac complications compared to, compared to ANCA positive patients. Again, though, if you look at the, the numbers, you're not seeing absolute, um, tracking between, um, ANCA positive and ANCA negativity. For example, for renal involvement, about, 33% of patients who are ANCA positive would have, uh, could have renal, would have renal involvement, while 13% of ANCA negative patients would have renal involvement. And for cardiac involvement, uh, those numbers are 14% for ANCA positivity and 32% for ANCA, ANCA negativity. So, you know, these are tendencies, not absolute, uh, you know, tracking between the, the two, two groups. And then one last point to circle back.
back to what you were saying, Mike, about the uh, potential phasic um, progression of, of EGPA. You know, we've written this in, in chapters and articles that this is something that's classically seen and can be seen. You and I have both seen this uh, pattern in patients, but it's not the only pattern that's seen. There's a wide variety of, uh, of tempo with which uh, uh, manif clinical manifestations of EGPA occur. So you'll see all sorts of uh, different uh, different patterns with with patients uh, over over time. So uh, important to point out that that's not the only way that you'll see uh, see somebody manifest their EGPA. Yeah, really important points, Praveen. Let's just focus and go back on you know what were our goals today, and our goals our smart goals, the our specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, timely goals really to apply the knowledge of disease pathophysiology to inform treatment selection in patients with eGPA. And I think we've done that. I think we've come to recognize that this is a complex disease, that the eosinophils are important, the vasculitis piece is important, and really that one should consider the use of IL-5 targeted therapies in the treatment of eGPA, as well as some other hyper-eosinophilic disease states. So, uh, Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you'll view the other parts of our educational series on eGPA, including these other snacks. These activities, as well as many other educational resources, can be found online at the CME Outfitters Virtual Educational Hubs. And lastly, I want to remind you all to receive CME or CE credit for today's program. Please complete the post-test and evaluation and you'll be able to download and print your certificate immediately upon completion. So thank you all for joining us, and thank you again, Dr. Akathoda, for joining me today for our discussion. Take care, everyone.